Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour, so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon and welcome to our monthly live stream q and uh, I'm your host, Isaac Arthur, and this uh, typical end of the month Sunday thing we do here is we ask questions from the audience, uh, those get relayed to my wife Sarah, who will be reading them off to me as we go, and is not, doesn't realize she's on camera at the moment. <laughs> and we are joined today also by uh, one of our regular co-writers, uh, Jerry Gorn, and Carmenettos, who is in visiting for the weekend, and may read off some questions as we go. So we're going to get to your questions right from the get-go, uh, about halfway through as usual we'll take a break and just get your questions in the moderators on the chat and we'll ask them as we get a chance to go through. Well we had a question from Merrick Wachowski and he says, Isaac, we know that changing matter into energy is possible and changing energy into matter should be. Is it possible that K2 civilizations use technology that changes energy into matter, making their Dyson spheres to not emit any energy? Could that type of Dyson Sphere hide alien life from us and be mistaken for black holes or dark matter? It's a good question. Apparently we had the audio live in the studio while we were doing the introductory song too. Um, so let's all remember not to talk during the intermission. Um, so the question is basically, can a civilization take all of its waste heat energy or all the excess light coming off its stall and turn it into matter? And the thing is, they are essentially turning it back into matter because what a star does, it takes all that matter and turns it into energy for you to use and more matter, usually higher ties through fusion. Um, you might decide you want to convert an entire star into matter, but if you have the ability to do that, uh, convert energy into matter, you probably have the ability to turn other types of matter pretty much directly into other types of matter, and I suspect you wouldn't have quite as much, you know, walk around. Is that a way you could hide yourself through the waste heat? I doubt it, because what you're really saying there is that, you know, yes you have the ability to convert energy into matter, but what you're really saying is you have the ability to Break the laws of thermodynamics that you can do this without any kind of waste heat. Whether or not you can turn energy into matter, and you can, we do this already, um, does not necessarily mean you can break the laws of thermodynamics in the process of doing it. So it's really just kind of um, an extra steps process there by saying that you can turn it into matter. So I'd say probably not, but you can never rule it out. It depends on, on what tech you have, I guess. Question from Jacob. Would there ever be a convergence of technological capability in terms of launch costs per weight and consumer demand to export water in bulk from Earth to Mars, O'Neill cylinders, etc.? Um, probably not, just because there's so much water out there. In the, I mean, water is the most common molecule in the solar system that's not hydrogen only or helium only. Uh, once you get out past the asteroid belt, water is just all over the place. Um, and uh, the Kuiper Belt uh, has more water on it than Earth does, many times over. Saturn's moons and asteroid uh, ring have tons of water. Uh, it's kind of my headcanon for uh, in the Warhammer 40k so if, uh, setting where they've lost all their water 
on the planet. They say it got blown off by, by atomic bombs repeatedly. My headcanon for that particular one is that they actually probably exported to the O'Neill cylinders right up in higher orbit. And it is possible that it might be cheaper at some point to bring water in a couple hundred, you know, kilometers up into orbital space stations than to bring it in a couple hundred million kilometers from the Kuiper Belt. But I don't really think you'd actually be exporting water off Earth too much. You might, though, to make yourself have additional land space you want lower levels of the ocean. Okay, and uh, from Josh Molesky, if you increase the rotation rate of a star enough, will it deform into a torus, like how donut planets do, or is there something about solid material that can do this while plasma cannot? Um, this is actually a question that kind of comes up in the context of doing this with black holes, too. You say, if we spun a black hole or a group of neutron stars that could form a black hole with the combined mass without actually merging, uh, what's called a curving, could you actually see the singularity at the center of that, a naked singularity as it's called, without actually having the event horizon around it? And that one's kind of iffy. But yes, you could actually have, uh, in the case like maybe a neutron star, for instance, a torus of super hot gas. I do not know, donut. I do not know how you would get a donut of matter actually to form naturally like that, but you should actually <coughs> do that. And indeed, there are maybe some like binary modules, because a lot of times those get very close and do actually merge at some point. Uh, you might have a pair of binary stars that did that somehow naturally, but you probably could make something like that artificially. Uh, like a, a toy or sun. Welcome back, Merv Johnson. Thank you for your super chat. And uh, I think this has to be his favorite running joke. As a crowd-funded evil AI, Isaac, can you please do an episode on private spaceship ownership? What are the costs and capabilities of a real Millennium Falcon? You know, that would probably be a fun one to do in some respects, small personal space yachts. But um, there are only so many lim well. Actually, yeah, I think that's a good episode. We, we will we will probably do an episode on that at some point because it's caught my attention. So if I can Great remember to be in the live stream, <laughs> we'll make an episode out of that. Because, um, I mean, just in general, one of the few ways I've ever thought that you could really do the spacecraft on Earth that had all that power, but that you trusted would be do that uh, approach we're talking for doing scramjets where you microwave beam the energy to the thing so that you can cut that supply off if it deviates off that. And there's just that energy concern all the time with spaceships that you're basically giving someone a nuclear bomb to ride around on. So That could be interesting. It could be. It's a, they did that in Dr. Strangelove, though, and I've always wanted to ride a nuclear bomb. Ben McElwain says, do you care to comment on the disappearing stars observations? Um... I think we did an episode on disappearing stars, the Fermi Paradox disappearing stars episode. So yeah, I remember one We went into that in a lot more detail there. I, I suggest that episode. Um, we, say we think that we also looked at cosmic voids in that one, too. Um, just in general, disappearing stars come into many different classifications of why they disappeared. It's our classification for we had found this at some point, and now it's not there. Some examples would be a nova, no one realized it was a nova, they dimmed out. Others would be it's occluded by dust, or we just confused it with starting by the data wasn't too spot on and now we think it's a whole new stall because it changed in brightness a little bit so there's a lot of reasons some of them might be because of aliens or unknown phenomena S.J. McCowan says Isaac we evolve fairly near the equator so if we make planets and space habitats have 24 hour days which didn't before would we make them have a 12-12 day night split all year round it depends on how you're lighting them but I suspect like if I'm building O'Neill cylinders in what we think of as a Dyson Swarm, I'm building a couple trillion of them. 
Um, you know, the whole idea is you got billions of times the living area available to you there that you have on off. Um, and each of those stations is not even a thousandth the size of Walthamton's land area, more like a millionth. So you got trillions of them. Some of them are going to be weather systems that do not actually exist on Earth. Some of them are going to be, you know, ones that are very extreme, like uh, the Sahara Desert one. Some are going to be the, let's try to make the, you know, um, saber-toothed tiger one or recreate dinosaurs on kind of thing. But you're mostly going to have things that are, well, figure out where people mostly choose to live nowadays because they like the climate, and that's what they're probably going to replicate inside most of those. Um, and I would guess that just means that you're going to have a lot of seasonal variation, though, but probably not snow or it snows from December 15th through January 6th, and then it's done. <laughs> I like snow. I like snow, too, but we always like it in reasonable quantities, right? So we don't necessarily want a ton of snow all year round or slush. <laughs> um, if you want to go skiing, you'll want snow. So you might need a spot. Like I, I don't want to go skiing. <laughs> yes, but other people might want to. People might want to. I don't go skydiving. Skiing in space. Mm-hmm. Raven 609. Isaac, could we breed or engineer new meats and vegetables? How about things like honey and milk? And what is the future of food? I've always wanted to create the bacon tree. A tree that grows bacon. Live bacon. Its sap would probably be blood, and that might qualify as an abomination. But but who does want a bacon tree? (laughs) You know, when they grow candy. Um, (laughs) They're all, I mean... Allegedly, there are like five flavors, core flavors that we have that we sense. Um, you can see there's like certain ranges of frequencies. There's obviously a lot you can do with those five. Um, don't even change the possibility that you might create a new novice ending for a sixth flavor, things like that. But um, I don't see any reason why you couldn't make something that like grew entirely new flavors of food, things like that. That certainly seems to be within the realm of, of what we've done pre-genetic engineering. What we can start doing now that we can actually start printing DNA really changes the game up a lot. Dragon King says, Happy belated birthday. Thoughts on the Foundation series? Uh, I'm going to have to give you the thoughts on the Foundation novels because I did not watch the first episode yet on Prime. Uh, I gather that just came out a couple days ago. I am going to catch that. I'm looking forward to it. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. It will be good. Um, I love the original series. Uh, it's, you know, it's Asimov. I'm named for him. Um, I really can't uh, imagine that the show could really live up to that level, but I'd like it to. I was going to these things hoping it's going to be good. I do sometimes like the films good on these, like with Dune, which is my next favorite series. I liked the David Lynch film. I actually defended it on Reels of Justice uh, last week. Um, and uh, I liked the miniseries they did on Sci-Fi Channel. I still haven't seen, because it hasn't come out yet, the new Dune movie. Keep your fingers crossed that it's going to be a good series, but I haven't seen it yet, so great book series. Hopefully a good TV series. Kang says, will you do a video on exploring the universe as an energy being, like what Michio Kaku envisions? I have no idea. I have no idea of what Michio Kaku envisions in terms of energy beings. Um, Jerry, do you know anything on... on no? um, I'm going to assume that that's something kind of like the Q or the Ascended Beings you know, from, from Star Trek or from Stargate. It would be awesome if you could run around the galaxy or universe... Um, as a big old ball of energy with vast amounts of power. I don't really see that one in the codes, um, except in a very transhuman kind of way. It seems like I don't tend to think there's psychic powers, but you could certainly make a technological hole in telepathy if you want to. So we'll have to see, but I, I've not really given that much thought, personally. Welcome back, Isaac Bordeaux. Have you ever played Kerbal Space Program? 
I've tried it out, but I haven't really gotten too into it. I know everybody, There's that's one of those ones like Stellaris that's incredibly popular with the channel uh, audience, but I've not really played it that much. I hate to say most of my video gaming time for sci-fi goes into making episodes these days, so... I am, that's why I'm almost always behind on catching up with these things. I think the last sci-fi video game I really got into was Mass Effect, and uh, that probably tells you about how far out of date I am on that. And I've not played Andromeda, so I was done with the series by then. <laughs> Divide by zero and get cake. How's that for a name? That's a good name. Hi, Isaac. Have you ever considered a renewable energy episode? We've done... I'm well, I wouldn't want to do an episode on renewable energy in general, though that's maybe not a bad idea, because we could do like a summary of the various looks, but it usually... like There's at least eight or nine different major types of renewable energy we could look at. Uh, for a given value of renewable, a lot of times the show, you know, a billion years does not qualify as a renewable energy source to us. Um, but uh, a lot of times I'd have like enough time to maybe give you a two minute rundown on those. I don't know what I, I try to do episodes that amount to the first paragraph of a Wikipedia entry on topic because you know there's that Wikipedia entry already available to people. Um, I did want to do a dive on solar power at some point because we did thorium, we did fission, we've done fusion, we've done antimatter, we've done power satellites. Maybe we should consider doing one on hydro, on, on, on actual regular solar on geo and things like that but uh my actual like summary episode maybe maybe salman sulman says hi isaac are you going to write a novel um i will almost certainly at some point in time write a book but it'll probably either be on mega structures or the Fermi paradox fiction's another story uh if you're looking for good fiction i can recommend one because we have an author present we'll just switch back over to jerry there hi hello <laughs> And I will try to remember after the live stream is done be live to put a link to his channel there. Uh, Jerry, again, one of our regular writers on the show, he's got a channel, uh, Jerry's Stories. You can find links for it on some of our episodes, but uh, he's written, uh, what, No Moon to Pray To is a fantasy novel, historical fantasy. Yeah. But he's done a lot of sci-fi short stories that are on audio-only format over on his show, uh, on his channel. I definitely recommend checking them out. Some of them are my favorites. I've helped edit a few of them, too, so... Um, but uh, as to be ever doing fiction, I tend to, well, also write like my namesake. I'm very big on exposition, very low on plot and characters that are not um, wooden exposition pieces. So I like to build worlds. I say I like to give the stories of people to be in them. Which is a very lengthy way of saying that brevity is not your strong suit. Thank you, my love. <laughs> <laughs> No Sa one watching this live stream was ever on the impression brevity was my strong suit. <laughs> well, just in case they had any questions. Sci-Fi by Alan Crawley. Thank you for your super chat. He says, I've been away for a while and it's so good to be back. Keep up the great work. Superman, also a live cha or a super chat, says, I'm a longtime fan and I love your videos. Tuman says, Isaac. Is there any task that would end up being ubiquitous, but also require a sapient level intelligence? How would AI be able to protest unjust treatment from their overseers? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that one. Um, the question is, do we actually need a repetitive task by AI that requires human level intelligence? That, that, that seemed like the first half of that. What was the second question there? Did you scroll away from it? How would AI be able to protest unjust treatment from their overseers? That was the second question. Um, honestly, protesting unjust treatment for your overseers is historically not a useful way to, to, to get that. A lot of times what you need is your overseers to suddenly get ethics. Um, 
if we start creating AI and we don't care about their rights because we don't believe they have them, then they'll never get them. Probably never because we can program them. They're not starting off with humans in this case. You're starting off with something we'd say, I want you to, you are a professional, super intelligent garbage cleaner. Your job is to eat garbage. This is what you've been made for, and I've made you to enjoy it, hopefully. I, I could imagine a particularly sadistic race that had decided to build them to not enjoy it. Um, we get that example with the, the affront in the culture series by Ian M. Banks. They were given the technology to make um, any number of much more high-tech and, and humane approaches to things that they actually decided to use genetic engineering to make their things they hunted more afraid and terrified by them instead. Uh, so, <laughs> I think if, you, if you're a civilization that has ethics, you want to start thinking about that whole AI issue before you ever, ever actually have to come up with the concern of whether or not any of them are being unjustly treated. Um, but the thing is, I don't think we're going to really need a lot of artificial intelligence at the human level. You need AI to be small and human, or you make it as small as it needs to be to do a task. Most would be, you know, how smart does my toaster need to be? How smart does my car need to be? And a human, you know, you do not need a human level intelligence to drive a car safer than any human could do it, right? Um, you need AI for non-human roles, so for the most part, human level AI really should be very uncommon. And you just use a human instead, I think, because there's a, not a shortage of us. <laughs> Following up on one of the previous questions, Raven609 says you should take a vacation to play video games. That is probably not a bad idea to do at some point in time, but I, I know I, I get twitchy if I, if I don't get back to the show, so... Trailing Ultima says, Do you believe there is a genuine chance humanity as we know it will ever live outside the solar system? Without some unlikely extreme life extension option, I cannot see any way it could happen. Is this the question if people from our current generation would, or? Says, Humanity as we know it. Oh, I guess the idea being, you know, it, it would take centuries before there was any significant human presence outside the solar system. Um, if we had like colonies because it's just the travel time to get that first one founded even if we were to set it out today and we're not likely to set it out for you know, at least a century I would think um, would there still be anything like normal humanity left that time and I would say yes because I I don't think we really all expect to see a future in which transhumans, AI, posthumans, etc are really trying to wipe out or replace the culture you're just adding to it it's not going to be an either them and us kind of thing it's just going to be a whole bunch of different options and no one's probably you know, going to be in a position to have total control over that so more likely than not you get that uh, everything continues to exist state of play where regular humans will still be around you still have you know the Amish equivalent of the 20th century humanity around and they might settle you know Alpha Centauri or Epsilon Iodani um, but I also believe it would roll out that people alive right now I mean I don't mean little kids even but like people all age I have no idea how old you are, obviously. Um, I, I'm, yes. Uh, <laughs> might live to be, you know, thousands of years old. I really do think we're going to see radical life extension in our lifetimes. It is the technology I really hope to see invented in my lifetime, too. <laughs> so. Psycho says that the first episode of The Foundation is really good. I hope that I consider it to be such, too. That is, it's good to hear someone say that. Popsicle Jonathan, thank you for your super chat. He says... Hello, Isaac. First off, your videos are wonderful. You are one of those few channels that I cherish on this site. My question is, will you be making a video on technocracy if you have not already? Thank you. Have we done a technocracy episode? 
I knew that's how you pronounce it. I just got stuck on oh, that. Oh, yeah. There was, we did a whole episode on types of future governments. They had a big list of ocracies. Yes. Majocracies and bureaucracies and crytalkies. And, I thought um, there was one on technocracy, but it was a couple of years ago. I don't that, that was probably technological singularity or something. But um, if we haven't, we probably will. That, that could be a good one to do. I always hesitate to do ones on, on like future government variations, but we did do an episode of future governments. And that didn't cause a gigantic flame war. And uh, usually anything that touches too much on one of those topics that we avoid on the show, where it doesn't actually cause everyone to get pissed off at the episode, or where I don't feel go through it feeling like we lost all neutrality, then I'm okay with writing that topic. But usually particular types of government, the concern there is, does it seem like an endorsement or a condemnation of that? And... You know, obviously everyone's got their opinions on these things, myself included, but I don't want to see as endorsing one of those topics we'll say on the show. Paul Ron, thank you for your super chat, and he wants to know if you have any thoughts on the recent UAP stuff. We, well, honestly, there's not really anything all that new there, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, it's not going to surprise anyone that I, I, we did that one on UFOs, the Navy UFOs, last year, I think. Um, I don't really think that they added that much new to it. Um, that's the conversation on that one is still the same when it was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, you either look at that as evidence of alien life or you look at that as evidence of something that isn't properly accounted for yet and might be mundane or might not be. And uh, I don't think that we've had anything new that's, that, that's changed that dynamic. And today's trivia question is from Sano Bello. They want to know, what is the biggest misconception you think that they have about you? Um... That I'm an artificially generated AI? That's accurate. I'm a time-traveling alien. So. <laughs> From the far distant past. Um, misconception about me that people would have. Uh, that I'm British. I, I know, yeah, I mean, that is one of my big old genealogy bloodline backgrounds, but uh, I'm not British. I, I was born in California and raised in Ohio. <laughs> Finlandry says, what types of magic could there be in a post-collapse society? What types of magic? Yes, M-A-G-I-C, magic. Um, wow. Um, I mean, well, let's take a, an obvious example. Um, Gene Wolfe's um, Book of the New Sun. This is the one that begins with the Shadow of the Torturers. Uh, the novel that's set, basically, everything in there, it seems fancy, but as you go through it, you realize he's got nothing but a, an old post-technological civilization lying around the dust. The miners are people who are basically grave robbers. The mountains he's walking over are collapsed arcologies and giant statues. Every mountain is carved up in some fashion. Um, and of course, then everything does seem like magic. And in the context of that, we need to remember people who believed in you know magic back hundreds of years ago, uh, they thought it worked. That's, that's why they took it really seriously. To them, it was no real different than what abortion science they had. Folks like Kepler and Newton, they were mystics, right? We think of them as the fathers of science, and that's fair enough in some ways, but they wouldn't make it through the first introductory level of what we think of as modern, proper, rational thought on these topics. Um, and, uh, you know, Kepler in particular, right? Um, but at the same time, what kind of magic things that could, like, fake magic, because we think of it as a fantasy, nanotechnology, obviously. Anything that allowed decent manipulation of, of uh, the environment with energy, uh, and that could be, like, microwave beams, uh, sonic tweezers, uh, just very tiny robots you couldn't see that did your bidding. 
Um, you could have things like technological telepathy. You could easily have every person on some post-technological planet that had abandoned technology because so wired into them, you know, that they was in their DNA. It's like machines that just lived inside them, that grew on them, just like all the other random parasites and symbiotes that come with us with time. And they had abandoned all their technology because they just didn't need it. It was too built into the environment. And they forgot that that's what that actually was. Um, so that could happen, but... I don't really think that's very likely that it will happen. It makes a great background story for things, but uh, it's very popular in sci-fi. My usual suggestion to folks who are writing, by the way, though, is don't try to make your fantasy system built on something scientific. Just try to make sure that the rules are consistent. Chad, thank you for your super chat. He says, without life extension, the human population will likely stabilize at 9 billion. Do we still have a driver to build space habitats? I don't believe that for one second. The idea that the population is going to stabilize at 9 billion, mind you, it's going to be 8 billion another year or so, right, is not, to the best of my knowledge, backed up by any peer-reviewed scientific anything ever. I, 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 I throw this thing passed around. When I was a kid, it was 16 billion, and that would be by this year, and we'd all be dead. People do population predictions like this all the time. They are always wrong. And they are never based on anything other than analyzing a curve like you would just do in, you know, a high school algebra class. Um, what we know about people is they tend to have children if they can comfortably do so. When you think the civilization probably cannot comfortably do so, you tend to discourage people from having kids. So we might stabilize. I would hope we'd stabilize at under 20 billion before we actually had a big space presence. Because trying to do much more than that without abundant power supply would be very hard. However, we should not assume that people are going to just stop at some magic number of nine or something like that. And I do not trust any of the extrapolations to say that. Right? I hear the numbers kicked around and they change every decade and they're always a little bit different and they don't seem to be based on any sort of actual science. So that, there was that on that. The other aspect, of course, is if you got nine billion people, what's stopping you from going to space? The idea is it's stabilized because people are saying we're having too many kits for the environment we're having. That's baked into the cultures that are currently having population declines or growth rate declines. They've been saying for decades or generations, um, you, we have too many people, we're going to have these Malthusian, you know, dystopian hellholes going on if we keep having kids. That factors into how the society looks at having kids. If all of a sudden you can start going up into space and having as many kids you want on a neosondor, then that does shift the attitudes on this a lot too. So there are a ton of different factors going to how much people are going to have for kids. But in whether or not it has anything to do with space travel, I don't know. But getting into space, the space race was done between a country that had, at the time, 150 million people in the United States, and I think about 180 in the entire Soviet Union in the 60s. So I, I don't think that you, you need to worry about the population total at 9 billion, for instance, preventing you from deciding you want to go into space. Floor Horbeck says, how do you make these videos? Are they computer-generated, or do you draw everything yourself? And if so, which program do you use? 3D Studio Max? Good God. Um, I do not draw everything myself. Um, like the live stream, for instance, is definitely not animated. It's it's terribly big strain on your wrist to animate a live show. <laughs> we use a lot of stock animations. We use a lot that are made by the animators that volunteer on the show. Um, uh, most of it is stock footage. Uh, that we get from various locations. I did do some animations early on for the show myself. I still make a lot of the single graphic explanations where it's just like one image that pans around. Those are usually me. But I don't really... We're doing 30 minutes of video a week. 
plus an extra episode every month that is not time to create animations for every single thing. Even Pixar would have problems keeping up with something like that. So, Joe says, Hi Isaac, you've talked about how the Romans missed Heron's engine before. What potential technologies that could revolutionize our world are potentially hidden in plain sight? Is this an idea for a future episode? Thanks. Low-tech civilizations. Um, that was an episode. Yeah, well, the low-tech space episodes, yeah. Um, I guess the problem, of course, is I can't really tell you what technologies are hidden in plain sight because if I knew what they were and they were easy, I'd just go patent them. <laughs> um, there is a mock tendency to find out that a lot of the technologies we have, uh, you know, we look at it as some kind of progressive steps on each one. And there's a certain truth to that. You know, you're not going to invent really good computing unless you've got semiconductors or something very parallel, like, um, I guess you could probably do it with, with very tiny graphene parts, for instance, a mechanical computer. But there, while there is some things that are built on top of a lot of them, a lot of times the technology is just that somebody finally got around thinking about it. And of course, that's partially on the environment. You, know, you don't invent the paperclip until paper is very cheap, you know, <laughs> until paper is everywhere, the paperclip probably does not get invented. Um, but there's nothing complex about that. So there are going to be tons of those. Expect the vast majority of innovation to continue to be something that people just didn't think of until now they did. I'm going to try to squeeze in two more questions here before the break. Uh, we have a super chat from Tom Depko. Thank you, Tom. And he wants to know what your thoughts are on the Hyperion series of books. It has some interesting concepts, but he's not heard you reference it in any videos. I'm sure that we have actually mentioned it. Dan Simmons' Hyperion series is one I'm thinking of, probably thinking of. And I, I was very fond of the first, first book or pair of books. Um, I, I, I don't really remember the, the third and fourth book as well, but uh, they're very good. If you haven't read them, they, they take the narrative standpoint of telling you it's a group of people each telling their previous story of why they'd visit a planet before they go back as a group to visit again. Um, and it's... Uh, I mean, it is, it's a classic of science fiction for a reason. I'm very fond of it. But kind of the physics involved in it are quasi-hard. The, the author clearly, Danson's clearly tried to, to make them pretty solidly based as opposed to totally space opera. But uh, there are some interesting aspects of it um, that I definitely recommend to folks. It's a good series to read. All right. Oh, it moved on me. Okay. Last question before the break is from Valdarg. What about a series of videos taking an optimistic outlook on the topics of previous videos, such as sentient AI being treated more as a children or legacy of humanity rather than feared? Hmm. I don't mind doing that. Um, I mean, the thing is, I usually think of the videos already being kind of on the optimistic side, so I don't know that we... Uh, well, yeah, we could do something like that. Look at humanity, the upsides of AI, the positive side of... of uh, of Skynet. <laughs> so, it's an interesting idea for an episode. And so, uh, if I can remember them through the end of the live stream, we'll see if we maybe get around to doing that one. Anyway, we're going to go on to a break for a few minutes. It's a great chance to get in a question to the mods or grab a drink and a snack. We'll see you in about four minutes. So, we'll be on break for I a few minutes, and it's a great time to get in a drink and a snack, as well as more questions for our second half. We never have a chance to get to them all though, and so if we can't get to yours, you can leave it in the comments of the episode. I try to get to most, and other folks often will answer too. Speaking of questions we missed in the live stream, one from last month was why a small black hole emits more radiation than a big one. That tends to confuse a lot of folks. We would just assume that a bigger black hole would emit more, 
but it's critical to the notion of Hawking radiation that the more massive a black hole is, the slower it leaks mass and energy. This results in black hole lifetimes that make even the smallest naturally forming ones look at the whole age of the Universe as little more than an eye blink, and means that as they slim down, they eventually get powerful enough to run starship engines or power plants, and for time periods and rates of efficiency beyond even what fusion power permits. But why is this so? There's a few ways to look at it without deep math dives, none of which are terribly intuitive or accurate either, but the easiest is with virtual particles. We tell folks that on the event horizon of a black hole there's a pair of virtual particles appearing and disappearing constantly, and that sometimes one half of that pair is just close enough to fall in, while the other half is just far enough away to fly off instead, resulting in that orphaned virtual particle becoming real and deducting some mass from the black hole. This is all well and good, but folks wonder why it isn't happening more often with bigger black holes. Indeed this seems even worse when we explain that it's not that event horizon of black holes causing virtual particle pairs. They don't, those are constantly occurring everywhere, even inside you, particles popping in and out of existence, and this is the quantum foam you've heard of. So you think a bigger black hole with a bigger event horizon would encounter a lot more of these particle pairs. And they do. But now we get to the critical part. The further you are from any massive body, be it a black hole or a planet or a tiny asteroid, the lower the gravity exerts on you, and this means even when standing on Earth your feet have more gravity yanking on them than your head. It's tiny but measurable. The thing is that the Earth's mass is big but quite spread out, and does not get any stronger as we get closer to its center because we start having mass above us pulling us toward it instead. However if we compacted Earth down more, to say a tenth of its current diameter, you would find yourself standing on its surface experiencing 100 times normal gravity, and if you tried to hang by your hands from a ball, like doing a pull-up, you'd rip your arms off. But even a little bit higher there is noticeably lower gravity, so something tall enough to feel noticeably lower gravity on its top than bottom can get shredded by that. This is the spaghettification we discussed in terms of black holes. It has to do with the strength of gravity rising sharply over a small distance, and that is more pronounced the more compact the object, or the smaller the black hole. Indeed if you fell into one of those big galactic central black holes many galaxies have, you wouldn't be shredded before you reached the event horizon because the tidal force is just small there. Now turning this back to Hawking radiation, the tidal force is much stronger right above the event horizon of a small black hole than a big one, meaning two particles very near each other, but one just a hair closer to that black hole, are experiencing vastly different gravitic pulls. As a result, the odds of one being ripped down away from the other are vastly higher, enough to offset the vastly bigger event horizon of more massive black holes, which produce basically only the tiniest amount of hockey radiation more than you or I or an empty flat bit of space does and that's why Hawking radiation is believed to rise as mass decreases. I hope that answers your question, now let's get back to more of your questions in part 2 of the live stream. I think we're waiting for a moment for everyone to get back in the room because they lost track of time, so I'll just flew through some of the uh, super chat questions while we're waiting for them to get back. Um, got one from Council Balasak has asked for, thank you for the super chat, given that we have a proof of concept for multicellular prokaryotic life, cyanobacteria I believe, can we expect an episode on prokaryotic aliens? Um, that's actually probably a pretty good question overall is if, whether or not you mean, can we have a sentient one that would be, um, uh, I mean just shut the door so the sound's not coming through. <laughs> but, sorry. Um... 
would we are we talking about having like a colony organism like a fungi that was sentient, or would we be talking about more just whether or not we expect to allow prokaryotic life on other planets? But that might be an interesting one to try. I don't know that there would really be a difference in their behavior though. Like, would prokaryotic aliens that were sentient or sapient really be any different than ones that were eukaryotic um, in terms of behavior? So kind of the same reason why we're necessarily think an AI would be. All right, let's get back to the questions. That must have been the fastest four minutes ever. <laughs> um, did we ask this question already? Do you think Planet Nine is real? No, I don't think we did. Um, I believe that Planet Nine is absolutely real. I'm just not sure which particular planet that would be at the moment. Um, you know, before uh, before we discovered Neptune, uh, right after we discovered Uranus, we also had named Ceres, Vesta, Pallas, and one other one, Juno, I think. Planets. They were just calling them planets, which is effectively what they were at the time. We were still getting a better idea for the size of these things because we kept finding all these giant planets, you know, all the gas giants. Uh, we thought, well, maybe these shouldn't be planets, especially because we got all these other asteroids we were finding. We didn't call them asteroids yet. Um, and so, for a while, the ninth planet would have been, let's see, um, eight. Jupiter. Jupiter was the ninth planet for a little bit. They can't have any other ones. Uh, Pluto could still be considered the ninth planet if you wanted. Is there another big planet out there? Um, I don't think we're going to find one that we think was really being part of the solar system at this point in time. There was a huge chunk of space um, between us and the Earth stars that really is not really part of the solar system. You can think of it as an old hillsphere, that area that we kind of gravitationally control to some degree, but even thinking of our Oort cloud as part of the solar system is really inaccurate because more like the interstellar medium that uh, is beyond the bit that our solar system specifically carved out. So they're really isn't a lot of room for a, a planet that we think of as a planet of all solar system at this point. It's going to have like an orbital period of tens of thousands of years, an absolute minimum at this point. So, um, Thank you for your second super chat, Popsicle Jonathan, and he wants to know this time, do you think that tech singularity will happen in the 2040s like Ray Kirks predicts, or is it probably still a bit further away? And thank you again. I don't remember what he originally said it was going to be, too. Uh, this is one of those ones, like, uh, and, and it's not a shot at me. Uh, he is probably one of our most accurate futurists. And this, I used to joke that if I got a business card and I put futurist or seer on there, I'd say I'm right 51% of the time. Uh, honestly, that that's probably on the generous side for most of us trying to predict the future. Even getting to 51% would be, you know, just better than random would be pretty good. Um... He's done a lot of very accurate predictions, but I think he's I think he and a lot of others are just off on the technological singularity thing. They say a thing about like one revenge too. Um, brilliant thinkers. Uh, but I think that everyone just extrapolated Moore's law a little bit too far. You know? A thing to keep in mind is we may have semiconductors and transistors and computer chips that are a lot smaller than a human brain and much more compact than a neuron, but they're still way they gobble heat up compared to what a human brain does. Our best supercomputers right now are actually processing more than we think a human brain would process. Uh, rate rise barely, but they take up a, a building and they produce a, they use like a megawatt of power to run versus the 10 watts your brain uses. So, um, this constant idea that we're going to keep shrinking, I think that's true, but that's going to snowball into some kind of very fast technological singularity as opposed to just this, you know, gradual increase that takes many generations. That I've never really agreed to, and I think that, that that's based off a little bit too many some, uh, assumptions we looked at in that technological singularity episode way back in season two. Maybe we should do that one. C.R. Smith, thank you for your super chat. He says, how do you view the idea that Hegelian dialectic of history, 
there's a thesis, then an antithesis, and then a synthesis to become the thesis and repeat. Can I have that one again? <laughs> How do you view the idea of the Hegelian dialectic of history? Which is? A thesis, then an antithesis, then a synthesis, and then it becomes a thesis and you repeat. I, I'm going to have to punt on that question. I, I, I'm just not, I'm not swallowing it. I'm not getting that one today. Maybe Jerry, I, did you get that one? I have no idea what that is. Sarah? If you want to put it in a rephrase, uh, the moderators will keep an eye out for that question again. If you can if make that one a little bit clearer, so <laughs> sorry. Flor Horbecki, why do physicists believe a black hole has a singularity? Why can't it be a quark gluon plasma because of the enormous heat and enormous pressure, which is the recipe for quark gluon plasma? It could be. Um, a thing to keep in mind is we're making assumptions around this, and and and. Singularity in mathematics, I think we're talking about one of the episodes coming up pretty soon. Specifically what singularity in mathematics is, is an area that is poorly defined or cannot be defined mathematically, right? So as an example, if I'm walking around on the surface of a cube, all the corners are singularities, right? Um, they're not properly defined in terms of, of being on the surface of one of those. Uh, all that's a bit simplified. Um, we know that Matter is keeping itself apart based on a mixture of poly exclusion principle and strong and weak nuclear forces and electromagnetic forces. Um, once those get shrunk down and crunched down, you get degenerate matter, as we call it. That's the white dwarf stage one. Then you get the neutron star, even more compact. Then there's the possibility of a quark star, even more compact, quark gluon plasma, and a Planck star, which would be something that's smashed all the way down to potentially the strings level, things like that. Um, it may not be possible for something to actually be point-like. All we know, though, is there's nothing that we know of currently that would stop it from going all the way down to being a point-like dot. Kind of the same for, like, the Big Bang. We don't know of any reason why it wouldn't have gone all the way down to the skies, but there's nothing saying that it definitely did either. Nathan Griffith says, Will AI in the future make visual artists redundant? No. Oh. <laughs> Uh, if there's a market for visual art, um, there will be a market for visual art made by humans. There will be a market for visual art made by AI. Um, there is the notion that television would get, well, you know, video killed the radio star, but it didn't, right? Radio is still huge. Um, it's going to get rid of books. The internet will get rid of paper medium. We use more paper now in all paperless society than ever before. <laughs> um, you know, things do go away. There's no milkman anymore, but now we get the you know, kind of a soldier that with things being dropped off. You know, um, I don't think we should assume that that's definitely going to be the way that happens. I just completely forgot what the question was. Wow. What was I the I think question? you answered it. Did I? All right, cool. Moving on. Trail Ultima. Does humanity need a goal? Right now we are advancing and exploring, but once we have pushed the limits of what is physically possible to invent and explore, do we still have a purpose? Sure. Um, you first have to say what is our core and purpose. Um, and there are a lot of answers to that. It's not one of those like, well, it's, it's necessarily up for debate. Um, many people believe that we have a specific purpose or purposes, and I don't know that anyone says that our main purpose is to explore the universe. Um, that's potentially one of them, but uh, whatever it is that you currently think your purpose is for doing, I don't see how that would be changed by exploring the universe in detail and running out of things to explore. We've explored this planet. I mean, there's there are yes, lots of things in deep undersea with uh, John Cust Jack Cousteau that you can go see bits in the you know Mariana's Trench we haven't found yet. 
Yes, there are underground lakes in Antarctica and other wonders we still haven't found yet, but the planet is pretty much explored, right? And there will get to be a point where the planet is fully explored. At that point in time, I don't believe humans on Earth have lost any purposeful existing, or that only remaining purpose be to explore the solar system or galaxy. Stovepipe Down Tube says, when the robots start destroying humanity, what will be our best strategy for survival? Prior. Uh, <laughs> if the robots are in a position to, to, to smash us up uh, and can get away with doing it, then you have to appeal to uh, something else that's got a lot of power. And if, they, if you haven't got other robots to ask to help you out, or you haven't got some of the faction like um, you know transhumans, or you know cyborgs, or genetically engineered supermen, or whatever it happens to be, appeal to a high oil power to help you out in a case like that, because that's probably about your best shot. Say for like alien invasions. Um, you need to have somebody, you know, if somebody can kick your butt right now because they're smaller than you, that is probably going to only get worse with time. So, <laughs> um, if we have robots running around that can kick our butt, they are not going to likely get less good at it. Patriot of the West, thank you for your super chat. He says, any personal recommendations on good retro-futurist sci-fi? Hmm. Almost everything from the Golden Age is still great. Um, you know, all your all your good old classics. Uh, obviously, Isaac Asimov would be a good one. Um, Heinlein, uh, Frank Herbert. That's a little bit more new. That's almost uh, new wave. Uh, Roger Zelazny is a favorite from that era. Um, a lot of the classics, though, uh, Campbell. Um, I can't remember who wrote Lensman. Uh, Doc Smith, but. Uh, even all the way back to like the John Carter and Mars ones, they all have to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt, you know, of scientific accuracy and cultural changes. But uh, those, yeah, if it's a, if it was a classic twenty years ago, it's still a classic now. Robert Thompson, we still know relatively little about our ice giants and their moons. Do you think we will see a mission to those systems in our lifetime, or will the focus solely be on the moon, Mars bases, or asteroid mining? You know what's neat about having a big presence in space, uh, like a moon base can actually extract metals and build, you know, a big ship to go to Mars. Is it makes it a lot easier to fabricate a, a, a you know, one-ton robot probe to go send at Uranus um, and uh, Neptune. Um, and you can also start doing those ion drives again there much faster, or mass drive, etc. So yeah, we'll get probes out there again. Expect to start seeing. We can do them smaller too. Expect to start seeing wads of probes getting sent out all over the place in the next. You know, 10, 20 years after we actually have our moon base. <laughs> Albert Jackinson. Hey, welcome back. It's been a little while. Hey, Isaac. What uses would arise from wiring every or almost every neuron in the brain with electrodes, assuming it's possible, practical, or useful, or similar mind augmentation technologies? If you're doing it to every neuron in the brain, the presumed purpose would be to probably copy that mind uh, as a, as, well, basically to copy that mind on the computer. Uh, or to completely, I mean, you don't need that much to be able to read a person's brain or control a person's brain, so that's probably not your objective there. Um, but, uh, like, well, we talk about mind augmentation, uh, even 3,000 little switches, like you got that Neuralink chip in that mouse. Do you have the Mohawk mouse that I always like to show you? Yeah. What do you think is gross? I think it's yeah. gross. <laughs> There's this picture of a mouse got the little thumb drive sitting out the back of its head. That looks Poor like a mouse. Mohawk. Well, Kind of mohawk. It was awesome mouse. Yeah, poor <laughs> mouse. <laughs> or oh, like the ape that did the banana smoothie pong game. Um, 
you know, if you got a few buttons in your head, a few hundred buttons in your head, they can be used as like your hotkeys for anything you want. That really speeds up your ability to do a lot of interactions with our local machinery. And that those are all programmable, and you can set them up so they're not going to be things you're accidentally flipping at nighttime. Um, that's the big advantage of that is it's just going to massively boost our interactivity with all the stuff around us that's digital. Okay. So, switching from digital to wood, C.R. Smith wants to know if he can make a spaceship primarily out of wood. We were just talking about weird things you could do with wood yesterday during our brainstorm. Um, we used to do brainstorms for the episodes uh, like every couple of weeks to just kind of look at topics we were getting ready to write and see what happened with them. And we hadn't done one in about a year or so, uh, COVID and everything else crazy going on. And we just got around having our first one again last night. Uh, and one of the things that came up was we're doing the topic of uh, upcoming advances in material science that's going to be out sometime in December, I think. And uh, one that was suggested as a subtopic for that episode was what cool new things we know with wood is, you know, like materials were all very mundane to us, concrete, etc. What new stuff could be done with them? To answer the question, could you build something out of wood? I don't think you could build a spaceship out of wood, but it does have some properties that wouldn't be bad for like radiation resistance, but it does remind me of an episode that comes to mind. Jerry would remember our Space Whales episode. And um, we uh, we wrote the Void Ecology and Space Whales episode. And I, I think you're the one who sold me on the Void Ecology episode, weren't you? Yeah. My favorite. Yeah, that was a great one to write together. And one of the things we talked about in the Space Whales episode that was kind of the companion episode for that was could you basically grow um, spaceships like they were coral, you know, coral reefs ones. Um, so there basically was a grown organism with a protective shell of, you know, moon rock around it, things like that. And uh, th maybe that would be something like a, uh, a tree, a, a space tree, forest of trees, things like that. The Dyson tree was a notion of a growing space habitat that was basically a tree, but a little less organic. So uh, we should have done an episode on that either. So yes, it would be an interesting topic to do, possibly. I, I'm noticing a theme in today's live stream. Mm -hmm. You're getting like the next six months worth of episodes well, you got the next four months already planned out anyway. <laughs> so. All right. Well, after that, I mean, sounds like a yeah. lot of good ideas. If I can remember them. <laughs> David says, any good sci-fi universes set 100 to 200 years from now that are not about how good the future is, but that are about a more normal life or the bad things governments and corporations do? The entire cyberpunk genre is about the bad things governments and corporations do. That's pretty much the cyberpunk genre, uh, plus tattoos and uh, like uh, Asian fusion. Uh, that's pretty much cyberpunk. Um, uh, Solarpunk is supposed to be a little bit more optimistic on that that sign, but I haven't really seen too much of it other than that yogurt commercial, um, which I was <laughs> a little surprised. But Chibani's yogurt commercial on Solarpunk was very weird. Um, so we posted to our Facebook forum, and it was the surprising source of quite a lot of topic discussion. Um, there was a lot of uh, bleak, borderline grimdark, uh, you know, a century or two from now stuff that's been popular forever and a day. If, if, you, if you're looking for examples of that, uh, the entire Judge Dredd and everything associated with that series is a good one for that. Uh, anything cyberpunk, anything by Neil Stevenson that isn't set in the past. Um, uh, I can give you so many examples. Um, there's a lot less optimistic stuff about the future in science fiction than there is pessimistic stuff. And part of that is because optimistic science fiction tends to make for a little bit of a boring story. 
everything's awesome and everybody has like all they need and there was no major wars going on just doesn't make for a very good plot you know but if you do want a more optimistic future then eat your yogurt so you have strong probiotics for a happy future <laughs> sponsored by shibati <laughs> switch the camera because i can <laughs> <laughs> so when my wife's not trying to get me to choke to death on a glass of water. <laughs> but that was not intentional. <laughs> wow. Oh, hey, the person's name is Wow. Mm -hmm. How accurate do you think The Expanse show is in terms of how humanity will be in 200 to 300 years? Uh, it's better than a lot of other ones. They, the authors usually do keep their science a little bit harder on that, obviously with the exception of what they do with the protomolecule. Um but uh, I mean, the, the 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 well, the books vary from the TV show. For one thing, I should point out, I, I haven't actually read any of the books past where the TV show was at for season four. I haven't finished watching season five yet, so I don't know about the later books per se. And I know they just had a new one come out not that long ago. Um, but it's one of those ones that shows Earth's got thirty billion people on it. Mars guys, I don't know, like a billion or something, and they have roughly equal power for some reason. And then there's the asteroid belt where for some reason they don't have water or air, in spite of the fact they have gigantic fusion engines that can take you from one side of the solar system to the other at, like, full born the entire time. Nothing about that is right. That, that's it's a great story. I love The Expanse. But if you have powerful space engines that can carry people around for uh, less than it costs to pay them for an entire year, right? If your passage to another planet isn't costing you a million bucks of the equivalent money nowadays then you do not have shortages of water. You do not have um, shortages of air. You do not have 30 billion people on a planet who have nothing to do with their spare time or any food because that's just not how a fusion economy works. We've got cheap fusion like that. Dustin King says, could you make a ring world using active support or is yeah. there some other technology that would make it strong enough? Um, it Trying to do a full-on ring world is really dubious with active support, but... And I think we did talk about this in the Ringwood episode. Um, maybe. I'd have to check back because that was quite a while ago. Uh, what what the suggested path is, there are probably better ones, but this is one that came to mind for me on this one because I was like active support. I love orbital rings and basically use that technology for that purpose. What you do, and you probably do this something a little bit more modest like a bank's orbital, which is a better mega structure anyway. You build a big ring that doesn't spin or spins very slowly or even spins counterclockwise to some degree. Um, counter routines are the main one big heavy ring and in that you put basically a magnetic cushion and you spin the smaller habitation ring inside that and it pushes magnetically against the bottom of that bigger heavier ring and that's how you get your tensile strength to hold that thing together you're basically just distributing the load to that much heavier non-rotating structure um, I don't know that you'd actually do that but if you wanted to build something like a bank solder with existing known science materials that's pretty much how you have to do it a much bigger ring in which that thing rested and you might just fill it with something like hydrogen gas or you know whatever useless stuff you have you can't find another use for we were talking about creepy halloween things before we got into this episode and i think this person may have overheard us they said mm -hmm. the deadly glitch hey isaac how big and destructive can a weapon get and still be practical would a universe-destroying bomb make sense, as using it would destroy everything in existence? Um, well, most of, the, most of the scientific pathways, and I should say we don't actually have any science of how to destroy the universe, right? 
most of the scientific pathways onto basic theories that would let you destroy the universe are set in the context of there being more outside of that universe, like uh, causing a drop to um, uh, you know the the uh, oh god god what's that called the 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 false vacuum right we don't actually exist in a pure vacuum if you dropped us to true vacuum uh that would destroy the universe but uh, assumption a lot of those is there's multi-forces there are brains out there for instance from string theory or m theory um i would be surprised if there was anything that actually allowed you to destroy all of reality period might interest thanos i don't know um or actually i think it was the beyonders that were blowing up whole universes and marvel comics doesn't matter um you could potentially have something that was the size of a pinhead, for all we know. If, it, if it's one of those things where you basically just have to poke a hole in reality in one place and the less will just fall apart, then that could be very small. You have to keep in mind, though, just on a known science, a gun that fired bullets with antimatter inside them will let you walk around something that was like an M16 with which you could stand up on a mountain with one clip of ammo and blow away the entire eastern seaboard with one clip and at that speed. And that's under known science. Uh, that's that's just that's how destructive that is right uh you might need to reload a couple of times you really want to atomize everything as opposed to just you know kill most people in those cities you can make some very potent tiny weapons that would kick superman's butt you know <laughs> sci-fi writers have no sense of scale usually so it doesn't come up much so grant self says do you believe that humanity will reach a point of clean energy efficiency that we could eventually reverse the adverse effects we have had on the planet and when do you think that will be? I think it'll be kind of a continual process because you're going to have other ones that pop up too. Um, you know, it, I don't like when people say that we, you know, for every problem this technology solves, two new ones pop up. It's not a hydra, you know, uh, they, we get new and better approaches. I know it's going to sound a bit strange to people because we have so much more technology now that we can do so much more damage, but we actually are much better at stewardship of the planet and the environment than, than our ancestors were. They are actually mostly horrible at it. <laughs> they just couldn't do that much damage because they mostly weren't in a position to do it. Right? And of course that depends on when we're looking timeline-wise and which culture and civilization. But um, uh, the ability to repair damage we do has always got to be a focus of any real effort to do terraforming in the future too. Right? If we want to have a future, we have to not wreck the planet. And you're not going to be able to take the population move to another planet that we terraform because the only way you can terraform plants is with the science and resources to fix your own right so there's no abandoning this world to go to mars that's not in the cards right um as to whether or not we'll get it oh i think yeah i think so we mostly want to so it's a it's a process it's slow it's irritating it's not as fast as most of us want in the ways we want it but we are all making progress on it, i think Stovepipe Downtube says, Do you think robots and aliens are going to save the human race by teaching us all to be good little atheist socialists? I'm surprised that one got through the moderators. Sorry. That what was, was the question again? Would you, do you think robots and aliens are going to save the human race by teaching us all to be good little atheist socialists? Probably not, but I am surprised that one got through the moderators. That, that is a, one of those basically political and religious questions everyone's got their own personal views on. So I'm not touching that with the 10-foot pole. So. <laughs> well, before we let everybody go, I think we have just one more minute left. Did you want to uh, Probably wrap a different up with question. A, uh, a final uh, wrap on our guest? Hmm? Jerry, let's focus over to him. And, and Cindy, can you find us one more question before we finish out after that, too? 
Tell Ooh. us about your channel. Oh wait, he's gotta have the microphone. Oh. oh. Okay. Yeah, my uh, channel is uh, Jerry's Stories, which uh, actually Isaac encouraged me to uh, start a couple of years ago. Um, and it's uh, my science fiction and fantasy stories. And uh, um, it was uh, this guy here who uh, pushed me to start uh, recording them and uh, posting them on YouTube. So uh, check that out sometime. So. <laughs> and I think we got another question up. Yes. So the last question of the day is going to be, from C.R. Smith, thank you for your super chat. He says, sorry for my last question. I, I don't think that was the was previous awesome. one that was yeah. further up. The Q from the book All Tomorrows are an intergalactic nomadic species. They change species using genetic engineering to warped forms, furniture, pets, etc. Is this possible? Um, I've not actually read that um, that particular book, but it does remind me of the... Uh the one metamorphosizing creatures from Douglas Adams' restaurant at the end of the galaxy. They mutated so fast that one of them uh, turned itself into a couch and then into the admiral of their fleet in like five seconds. Very strange examples. I love Douglas Adams. Um, but, uh, I don't know, you could actually have a... They obviously would not be a species at that point in time because they're changing their genetic structure too much, but you could have a civilization that basically just, uh, instead of terraforming plants, bioform to them. They basically just change themselves to change themselves around to whatever will walk on that planet, that environment, that setting. And I think, uh, as we say, usually we expect everything to be a mix of bioforming and terraforming, you know. When you have a civilization go live up uh, for the north, they, you know, they bioform a bit by going ahead and putting on heavier clothing and making little adaptations to live better in that environment, but they also terraform a bit by building houses or environments to get a little bit of snow. So... Uh, that's probably a good place to close out for the day. Uh, before, you, before you head out, we want to um, oh. give a shout-out to Abraxas C. and thank him for his super chat, and good luck in writing your book. <laughs> and so we'll go ahead and close out there. Thank you, Jerry, for joining us today in the studio, and for my lovely wife, as always, for asking us questions. And we'll go ahead and close out. Thank you everybody for your questions, and if you didn't get your question answered today, uh, feel free to post in the comments after the episode, uh, and we'll try to get to it next day or so. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.